I was fortunate to have a seat at the lunch table. My friends always welcomed me all throughout high school and I always had a place to eat. But the true part is, I, I wasn't always sure if I really belonged there. I feel like that in a number of other areas in life. Ethnically, I'm a proud and grateful Egyptian American, but the truth is I've spent more time on cruise ships in the Caribbean than I actually have in Egypt. I don't really have a great command of the Arabic language, and my skin tone is actually a little bit lighter than most people who share my ancestry. Uh, politically and culturally, uh, I'm not sure where I belong either. I'm often not conservative enough for the real conservatives, and I'm not progressive enough for the true progressives. I tend to find my space someplace in the middle, trying to figure out the complexity and the gray of it all, but honestly, I'm not sure exactly where I belong. Well, greetings, friends. Good to be with you all today. Before we get to our message, we want to pause and mark a significant moment in the life of Grace Chapel and one of our pastors. So I'm standing here with uh, Richard Rhodes and his wife, Dory, and the moment we are marking is 30 years on pastoral staff at Grace Chapel. Now, there aren't many of us that have been around longer than 30 years, and uh, the, the bottom line is that the, the church that we have come to know and love here at Grace has been shaped in large part by the presence and the ministry of Richard and Dory. Uh, Richard first came to Grace as the pastor of discipleship and evangelism, then he became pastor of outreach, then pastor of new campuses, and now pastor of campus development. Along the way, he led Grace's efforts to plant two churches, Grace Community Church in Chelmsford and Grace Point Church in Andover. He led our multi-site effort from the very beginning, and so was instrumental in the launch of Wilmington, Watertown, East Lexington, Foxborough, and our partner church in Amherst, New Hampshire. Richard founded the Alpha Course and has been leading it all these years, which has seen hundreds of people come to faith in Christ and take steps on their spiritual journey. 40 Days of Purpose, 40 Days of Community, Winter Blast, Spring Serve, One Church Sunday, Baptism, Welcome Team, Global and Regional Outreach. You get the point. His most significant accomplishment is that he has survived three senior pastors. Okay? So, well done. Now, Dory has not just been at his side the whole way. She, too, has been investing in the life of this community with her gift of hospitality, her skill as a counselor, and also teaching in our adult uh, discipleship department. Uh, they've raised their three kids here, and they have had a strong presence in the town of Bedford these many years and have introduced hundreds of people to Grace Chapel and to life with God through faith in Christ. So all that to say, there's hardly any aspect of life and ministry at Grace Chapel that doesn't have Richard and Dory's fingerprints on it somewhere. And their impact has come, not just because of how long they've stayed and the work that they've done, but because of who they are in our midst. I'm grateful and honored to call them friends and partners and brothers and sister in Christ. So as a staff, we have already celebrated Richard and Dory. We've given them a gift, but we wanted you to share in this remarkable moment as well. So I'm going to give Richard a chance to bring a greeting, and then we're going to pray for them together. Richard. Wow. You said almost everything that I asked you to say. No. <laughs> come here. Come here. 
uh, you know, it's hard to believe that half of my life I've spent here at Grace Chapel. It's just amazing. What a joy, what a privilege. My deepest longing has been that more people would know that life with God is better than life without him. And to look around and see people that have come to faith is just the greatest, greatest joy. And I want to thank you for your patience and support and all those things you mentioned everybody's volunteered for. It's just been a, a, a great joy. And to do it alongside my beautiful wife has been a terrific privilege. You want to say anything? It's been a joy to be um, here on, um, be the wife of a pastor on staff at Grace the past 30 years because it really has been an amazing staff team that are people of character and integrity and um, love God and also in a wonderful congregation to um, participate because it's such a collaborative church that it's so fun to work alongside of so many people over these years. So thank you for the privilege. It's been a great place to raise our family. Thank you. So thank you for all that have invested in our kids. We have a daughter, Haley's 25, and boys, uh, Andrew and Ryan, that are 21, that this church raised up and nurtured and loved, and we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, we would like to, uh, let's stand up on all of our campuses, okay? Can we stand together in honor and appreciation and to stand with Richard and Dory in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we know that Richard and Dory's heart and ours as well is to give you praise and to celebrate your good work in and through them and uh, through this church over these many, many years. And so we thank you, Lord, for churches that have been strengthened, planted, established, launched. We thank you, Lord, for communities that have been served. We thank you for ministries that have been launched and expanded. We thank you for partners that have been sent and supported. We thank you, Lord, for seekers who have taken a step closer to you or come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We thank you for believers who have been discipled, for disciples who have been mobilized, for volunteers who have been recruited and encouraged, for leaders who have been developed and empowered, for the gospel that has gone out in word and deed, in and through and around Richard and Dory. So we are grateful for that. And thank you for it. We pray your rich blessing on them over this next stretch. Grateful that we have many more years to look forward to of life and ministry together. May you bless them, their children, Haley, Andrew, and Ryan. Bless their marriage, their home, their ministry, and our relationship with them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, my friend. Grateful for it. So what kind of people belong to this community called the church? People like that, I hope. What kind of people belong here? For several weeks now in our series on belonging, we've been talking about the kind of community this is. We've talked about the fact that it's a Christ-centered community, that it's a worshiping community. It's a transformative community. It's a serving community. And that's important to know because if you're thinking about joining a group or an organization or a community, you want to know what, what kinds of things happen there. What, what do they stand for? What are they all about? But you also want to know who else belongs to it. What kind of people belong there? 
Are they the kind of people that you enjoy being with? Are they the kind of people you want to be associated with? Are they the kind of people you hope to be like someday? Because if you belong to them for any length of time, chances are you're going to look like them. So it's an important question. We heard, we've been hearing stories of belonging from our pastors in the uh, opening videos. We heard from Pastor Tim today. A few weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Robert. He described how he found a table for himself at the lunchroom, a table he really wanted to belong to. He wormed his way into that group only to discover that he really didn't like the people at the table. <laughs> they weren't the kind of people he wanted to hang around with, so he went off in search of another table. The old-time comedian Groucho Marx once said that he could never belong to any club that would have someone like him as a member. <laughs> and we resemble that remark a little bit. It raises the question, it reminds us that any group, any organization is only as good as the, as the people who belong to it. So what does that mean for the church? What kind of people are, are we connected to here in this community? What kind of people do we want to become if we stay and do life together? These are the questions we're going to think about these next few weeks as we continue in our study of true belonging. We're going to keep on moving in Paul's letter to the Roman church. And today, in the weeks to come, we'll talk about the kinds of people, the kinds of behaviors that are characteristic of this community. Today, we're going to talk about three topics, politics, ethics, and lifestyle. We'll spend most of our time on politics because that's obviously the most challenging, but we'll touch <clears throat> on those other two as well. So let's go to Romans chapter 13, and I want to read this whole opening section at once so you get the, the whole, the whole uh, thought. <clears throat> Paul writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience." This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Well, they say that friends should never talk about religion or politics, and we're going to do both for a few minutes here. And the truth is, we need to, because I have never known a time in the church when the intersection of faith and politics has been so, so challenging and so contentious. So I'm glad that our study of the scripture has led us to this particular topic at this particular time. I'm eager for us to figure this out, not only for our sake as a community, but for the sake of the world around that's being so torn apart by politi political divisiveness. So we all understand what a sensitive and challenging topic this is, so I'm going to ask you to be patient and to be gracious as we kind of work through this topic a little bit. Don't just react to something you hear or don't hear until you've heard the whole thing. If you want to walk out then, you're welcome to, okay? I hope, I'm not sure if you can see it online, but I've got my politically correct shirt on today. Okay, it's not Republican red, it's not Democrat blue, it is royal purple, the color of King Jesus. All right, so that's what it's all about. 
So as I said, we'll spend most of our time here on, on politics, and then we'll quickly touch on ethics and lifestyle. Let me lay a few foundational principles and then try to apply them practically. First, government is ordained by God. Now, Paul could not have been clearer. He says it at least three times. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He's not saying that God approves of every government that exists. He's not saying he approves of every leader who holds office. He's simply saying that the institution of government, the practice of empowering people to give civic leadership, is in keeping with his purposes. So as Christian people, we are not anti-government. We recognize its rightful role in God's economy. Secondly, government exists to promote human flourishing. Again, Paul made it very clear. The authorities are God's servants. The government is meant to promote good and restrain evil. God's intention from the very beginning is that human beings would flourish, that life on this planet would flourish, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion over it. So it's the role of government to create the conditions that allow all its citizens, all of its citizens, to flourish. Conditions like freedom, opportunity, safety, health, prosperity, justice, order, peace, protection. These are good things that God desires for every human being and every society. Thirdly, government is worthy of thoughtful cooperation. If government serves God's purposes, then it's our responsibility to cooperate with and responsibly participate in whatever ways are appropriate and available to us. So we submit to its laws, we pay our taxes, we respect our leaders. Now, Paul could not have imagined a scenario in which every citizen would actually get a vote for who holds an office or what laws are passed. But he would certainly say that's one way we thoughtfully participate is by voting. He also couldn't have imagined a setting in which citizens could speak out in protest against their government. But again, we are free to do that, and he would encourage us to do that thoughtfully and respectively, respectfully when it's called for. Finally, governments and citizens are ultimately accountable to God. Paul is reminding leaders and citizens that ultimately God is in charge. And we are accountable to him for our attitudes and for our actions to uphold our responsibilities as leaders and as citizens. He doesn't say it here specifically, but he says it in other places, that our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. We are citizens of another realm. So given these four foundational truths, what does that mean practically in terms of our life together as a community and followers of Christ? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller is one of the most thoughtful and highly regarded leaders in the contemporary Christian church. And he too has been so exercised by our current environment that he, he wrote a piece in the op-ed section of the New York Times just last Sunday. Let me read just one of his lines. Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the status quo. To not be political is to be political. I think Tim is capturing the essence of what Paul's trying to tell us here in Romans 13. If government exists to serve God's purposes, 
then it's our responsibility to thoughtfully engage with and cooperate with the political systems and structures and opportunities that we have. But as we're finding out, it's very difficult to do. I've never seen a time when Christian people are so at odds with each other and when churches are being disrupted by political controversy. So let me offer a way of thinking about this that, that, that I'm finding helpful. I'm going to, we might call it rules of engagement for political uh, engagement as a church. And this is coming out of some conversations I've been having with some other staff members as well, so I'm grateful for their help. Let's start with a category or a zone that I'm going to call political convictions. Okay, these are responsibilities of government as laid out in the Bible and generally affirmed by all believers or most. Now, the list I'm going to share with you here was actually recently released by the National Association of Evangelicals. Now, the NAE is a national, loosely-based organization or association of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, interdenominational churches. There's a lot being said today in the media about what evangelicals supposedly stand for politically. And there are a few high-profile leaders who are trying to speak for the entire evangelical movement, which is impossible to do. Some of us are even getting uncomfortable with that evangelical label because of all the political entanglements. So I found it refreshing and helpful when I came upon this recent document released by the NAE. So let me just share the list in no particular order. First, protecting religious freedom and liberty of conscience. Christians generally believe that every citizen should have the freedom to worship God and to practice their faith without government interference or control. Second, safeguarding the nature and sanctity of human life. We believe that every human being was created in the image of God and deserves the right to live, including the unborn and the aged and the chronically or terminally ill and those with disabilities. Third, strengthening marriages, families, and children. The Bible and history tell us that family is central to human flourishing and to a stable and productive society. So one of the responsibilities of government is to ensure that every household has access to adequate housing and health care and education and employment and legal protection. Fourth, seeking justice and compassion for the poor and the vulnerable, including those with less power, such as women, children, immigrants, refugees, minorities, prisoners, and victims of human trafficking. We understand God's heart for the downtrodden and the needy and our responsibility to respond and be attentive to those needs. Fifth, preserving human rights, including the rights to life and liberty, justice, security, and dignity. Sixth, pursuing racial justice and reconciliation. God's vision is to reconcile all people, not only to himself, but to one another. 
and to overcome the, the divisions and the discriminations that elevate one race or ethnicity above another. There is no favoritism with God. Seventh, promoting a just peace and restraining violence. God intends people and nations to live in harmony with each other. And so government promotes and preserves peace through just policies, through skillful diplomacy, and through a strong military. Eighth and finally, caring for God's creation. God has entrusted human beings with the stewardship of this planet. And so it's the responsibility of government and citizens to act and do commerce in ways that, that preserve its beauty and its productivity for the generations to come. So there you have it, eight political convictions that I believe most of us would affirm are found in the scriptures and that we would agree to. If you'd like to see the whole list and the whole document, you can find it at the NAE website. It's easy to find. And you can see that this list spans the political spectrum. It crosses the aisle. Liberal, progressive, left and right, they're all there. Interestingly, Pastor Tim Keller uh, titled his op-ed piece, Christians Don't Fit in Political Boxes. And it's maybe why our own Pastor Tim, in our little video today, said that he's not always sure which group he belongs in. Again, there's a lot being said these days about what evangelicals stand for. But it's helpful to, to hear what actual evangelicals actually claim to stand for. So this is a pretty good list. So with these convictions in mind, let's consider another zone or another category that I'm going to call biblical values. Okay, these are behaviors and attitudes that guide our engagement politically. Most of them are found right here in Romans 13. We are to honor those in authority over us, recognizing that they're there to serve God's purposes. We're to submit to our government by obeying its laws. We cooperate with the government by paying our taxes and voting and participating in civic life. We respect not only those in leadership over us, but our fellow citizens, even those who might disagree with us. And then finally, prayer. Paul doesn't mention it here, but he does in others of his letters, that we are to pray regularly and faithfully for those in leadership, that they might seek and receive God's wisdom for governance. Now, we could elaborate on these. We could probably come up with a few more. But I think we'd all agree these values are foundational to how we relate to one another and our society. And if I were to come up with one word that I think captures or summarizes all of them, the word I landed on was civility. It's the word we hear a lot about today, mostly bemoaning the lack of it in our culture. So how about we be people of civility? Of, of respect and prayer and beauty and honor and dignity. It ought to characterize Christian people. So as I see it, these two zones, political convictions and political values, these are essential and these are universal. Regardless of your political persuasion or party or platform, these values, these convictions ought to guide our political engagement. But there's a third zone, a third category in the middle that I'm going to call political strategies. 
Now, these are the means and the methods by which governments or citizens actually pursue and promote these convictions. And while the, 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 the convictions and the values are, are biblically grounded and pretty universally agreed upon, these strategies and means and methods are less clearly defined biblically, and they are widely debated, even in the church. Let's take, for instance, the, the sanctity of life issue, and in particular, the issue of abortion. We've all agreed that safeguarding the sanctity of life is essential to human flourishing and one of our key biblical convictions. But Christ followers will find different ways of promoting that particular conviction. Some will work hard to limit abortions and perhaps even enact laws and overturn Roe v. Wade. Others will want to come alongside women who are in crisis pregnancies to support them and help them make good decisions. Others will want to provide care and support for children who are born into underprivileged circumstances and giving them the right to live. Now, each of these and all of these are valid and effective ways of safeguarding the sanctity of human life. Now, as believers and citizens, we might disagree as to which is the most effective which is the most urgent, which is the top priority. And we ought to talk to each other about that once in a while and challenge and stretch and debate with each other so that we arrive in good places together. But our commitment to the values of respect and civility say that we, we won't pass judgment on each other. We won't part fellowship with each other if we choose to operate in a different realm in the strategy zone. If this should be an area of particular interest for you, you should know that we have a grassroots ministry here at Grace called LAMB that's involved in all of these ways in addressing the sanctity of life issue. Take one more example. Let's talk about a current one and a, a, a controversial one, the whole problem of immigration and refugees. Some will argue that out of compassion, we should, we should welcome as many as possible people who are, who are running for their lives, people who are seeking a better future for their families. Others will say it's irresponsible to, to welcome more than our system can absorb and without proper attention to security. Now, there's wisdom in both of those perspectives, and there's value in addressing both of those concerns. And so we need to talk to each other and listen to each other and challenge each other and then give each other the freedom to act and to, uh, to promote the strategy that we think is most helpful, most true to who we are, and the best, most consistent with Scripture as we understand it. And we'll do that in a spirit of civility and respect. And again, if you should have an interest in that topic of refugees in particular, we have a grassroots ministry here at Grace of folks who are trying to address that in our greater Boston region. So you get the idea. Let's bring the chart back for a minute. Our political convictions and our political values are biblically determined and broadly affirmed. Our political strategies are personally determined and broadly debated. What this means is that the church operates best in those two outside zones of conviction and value. We preach and teach these convictions and we practice and promote these values so that we can operate effectively in this middle zone. 
But this middle zone is going to be a, a zone of personal decision and responsibility and engagement. The church equips you to operate in that realm by promoting convictions and values. Now, one caveat. There will occasionally be issues that will demand the church stepping into that middle zone, the strategy zone. When things are such egregious and obvious violations of God's will for human beings that the church has to act. I'm thinking of what should have been done in Nazi Germany. What should have been done in slaveholding America. So there are times to do that. But those issues are going to have to be prayerfully, biblically, thoughtfully, and collectively determined. So here's what you can expect politically at Grace Chapel. We will pray for our leaders and for these concerns on a regular basis and when something unexpected or unusual happens in the world around us. We will teach on these themes when Scripture leads us to them or when something's happening that we feel needs to be addressed biblically. We'll occasionally provide forums, safe environments in which you can explore and discuss these particular issues, like the Q Commons. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. And we will encourage and challenge you to, to be engaged politically, to be informed, to vote, to participate in civic life even to protest if you feel led to do that, or to run for office if you feel led to do that. But we will always do those things from a biblically informed, non-partisan perspective. Witness the purple shirt, okay? It's a very big value for us here at Grace is that we are non-partisan. Here's what we won't do at Grace Chapel. We won't tell you how to vote. We won't ask you to sign petitions. We won't endorse a political party or candidate or platform. We won't assume that everyone in our life community sees things the way we do. And we'll listen more than we speak. We won't rant on social media. We won't pass judgment on each other or walk out on each other over political differences. We won't be yanked around or drawn off course by every political firestorm. I assure you of that. And we won't, we won't ever forget that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. That our primary mission is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in word and deed near and far. The solutions to the world's problems are spiritual. And our mission is spiritual. Those solutions are found in Jesus Christ. And knowing Christ and making Christ known is our primary mission as a church. It's why we celebrated communion before we came to this message today, to remind ourselves who and what we are all about. So if you ask me what kind of people belong to this community that call the church, politically, we are people of civility people whose biblically informed engagement is marked by respect, honor, cooperation, and prayer. Now, I realize that's a lot of ground to cover in a few minutes, and I told you we spend most of our time on that topic. If you have difficulty with something I said or something I didn't say, 
I encourage you, reach out to me online, brian at grace.org. I'd be happy to hear from you. Understand that there was not time to unpack all of these issues completely and thoroughly and probably fairly, um, so I'll just ask for grace on that. And the good news is if we got through politics, then ethics and lifestyle should be a piece of cake, okay? <laughs> so let's just very quickly, very quickly touch on these last two. Because we're, we're not, this is not a sermon about politics. This is a sermon about what kind of people are we? Paul has two other things to talk about. Look at verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if Paul was talking about politics in that first section, he's talking about ethics here. He's talking about right and wrong behavior. He's talking about how we treat each other as human beings. So as followers of Christ, ethically, we keep God's commandments, beginning with the Ten Commandments. We don't commit adultery because we know it ruins lives and families. We don't murder because we believe that every human life has value and dignity. We don't steal because that means we're depriving someone of something that rightfully belongs to them or that they earned. We don't covet because we know it infringes on another person's freedom to enjoy something they have or have received. But as followers of Christ, our ethics aren't only marked by what we don't do, but by why we do do. And by something greater than law, by love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. We go above and beyond law. We go to love. And so we don't just not commit adultery. We cherish our spouses and invest deeply in our marriages. We don't just not murder. We value and promote and champion life in all of its expressions. We don't just not steal. We give generously to whoever has need so that no one is tempted or having to steal to meet their needs. We don't just not covet. We, we rejoice with those who have and we're content with what we have. So if in politics we're marked by civility, in ethics we're marked by integrity. Integrity means one thing, the same thing. The one thing we are marked by, the one thing that's through and through true about us is that we are people of love. Our, our morality is marked by love, the love that God has shown to us in Christ. And then finally, Paul turns his attention to our lifestyles, our behavior. And do this, he says, understanding the present time. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently and in order. Decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to unpack all of these words, but basically Paul describes three kinds of behaviors here. Carousing and drunkenness, we might call wild partying, okay? <laughs> what he calls immorality and debauchery, 
when was the last time you used debauchery in a sentence, we would probably call sexual recklessness. And what he calls dissension and jealousy, we might call conspicuous competition. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? My kitchen is newer than your kitchen. My kid is smarter than your kid. That kind of thing. Now, obviously, Paul is not saying that, that Christian people can't go to parties, that we don't enjoy our sexuality, that we don't try to improve our kitchens or our kids. <laughs> Scripture tells us to live life to the full, to, to reach our full potential, to make the most of life in this planet that God has given to us. But it also reminds us to do all things with the goal of becoming more like Christ to live life and do work and love people the way Jesus would have done life and done work and loved people. Jesus lived a beautiful life. He enjoyed people and parties. He celebrated marriage and the sexual union of a husband and a wife. He worked at a job. He helped to build and provide for a family. He loved his neighbors. He lived a beautiful life. And he invites and empowers us to do the same. So these are the kinds of people who belong to this community called the church. People who, in politics, aspire to civility. People who, in ethics, aspire to integrity. And people who, in all things, aspire to beauty. The beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, we haven't attained these qualities in full we haven't arrived yet, but we come together as a community in order to pursue them, in order to practice them, in order, them to, offer, order to offer them to a world that desperately needs them. That's the kind of community that I want to belong to. Friends, our society is being torn apart by political acrimony, by by moral recklessness and by ethical bankruptcy. Let's show them a better way, a more beautiful way. Let's show them the Jesus way. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the scripture that speaks so pointedly and practically and even profoundly to our present circumstance and challenge. Thank you that you've not left us on our own to navigate these treacherous waters and challenging arenas of life, but you have given us the scriptures to guide us. You've given us the spirit to help us apply these things personally. You've given us brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage and challenge and stress us. And you have given us a mission that is bigger than any of these things. So we pray, Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit to create this kind of community, this kind of spirit in our hearts for your glory, for our good, and for, the, for our joy, and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.